The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is a WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Right now that time, 8.16, you're listening to WGNS on this Monday morning. And our guest starting off this first segment, we have with us Dr. Michelle Stevens, Director of Center for Fairness, Justice, and Equity uh, in the MTSU College of Education. Now, is that supposed to be equality? Or is no, it, it's it, equity. it is equity. Okay. It is, it's equity. So tell us, I guess, first a little bit about what you do there on the MTSU campus. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And um, so I actually have been with MTSU for 14 years and I started out um, um, in the professional counseling program. And so I have taught folks to become school counselors and mental health counselors that whole time. Um, We are in the College of Education. And so um, that was a really good transition to kind of go into administration. Um, And so now as the director for the Center for Fairness, Justice and Equity, and we just call it the FJE, um, because that's a very long name. It's a mouthful. (laughs) It is a mouthful. Um, But I've been saying it for a while, so it's easier, but the FJE. um, So with the FJE, we, it's a brand new center. We launched in March of 2022 and really have been focusing on making sure that um, the college continues to be an equity um, center and a center for um, just everyone to um, actually thrive. So we serve uh, students, we serve faculty, and we serve staff um, on a lot of different areas. And so really just getting into the programming part of it for the fall. We have a lot of things going on. So cultivating inclusion, trying to make everything literally open for everyone from all backgrounds. Is that tough to do in today's times or is that fairly easy to do in today's times? Well, I think it's... um, It's kind of tough, but you just have to be really intentional about it. So last semester, we did um, a lunch and learn with Dr. Christina Cobb, who's also at MTSU, brought her in when we talked about just inclusive teaching, what that looks like, what it means, um, how to make it practical. Um, So that, you know, it's just it really takes some intentionality behind it, making sure that um, you're including um, things from every background that you can. I I know when you bring in people from all backgrounds, other countries, I I mean, you're talking about a very diverse background, but when you bring that together, the end result can often be, you know, more creative talents uh, from all walks of life. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's really what we're trying to do, um, especially when it comes to creating teachers, right, or, or, or training teachers, um, because we know that um, there's not as much diversity in terms of teachers, right? And so when we're thinking about uh, teacher preparation, we want to make sure that our students um, kind of represent um, all of the diversity that their students will represent, right? And so making sure that, um, you know, a lot of different voices are there in the K through 12 system, that's another thing that we're really, really focused on. Rutherford County is an interesting place because yes. we are currently at that crossroads of growth. And with that growth, we're bringing in people from all over the place, other mm-hmm. countries, other states, 
But a lot of people, we've seen a huge influx in population, of course, but a lot of folks are moving in from the West Coast, from the East Coast, and like I said, from other countries as well. And we're kind of at that, I don't know, center of being a growth hotspot. Mm -hmm. And we have been for the last few years, but that's going to continue to occur. It will. And that's why it's so important to not only uh, recognize that, but celebrating the differences. Because with some of the differences, we have a lot of similarities as well. And so, again, just being very intentional about highlighting the differences and similarities and bringing that in to um, not only MTSU, but also the teachers that we're producing. And it's not just teachers. We're also producing counselors and librarians and things like that in the College of Education. So when you see the different students at the school who are coming in to eventually become a teacher what are you seeing as far as diversity is there a lot of diversity or is that something that is going to grow more in time so we're hoping that that's something that grows in time right and another thing that we're thinking about is not just the recruitment of diverse individuals but also retaining them right and so what that means is making sure that the proper supports are there to help folks thrive um, whether that's financial aid support whether that's um, social emotional support all of those things we're, we're thinking about again the intentionality part of it now some of the statistics I'm reading here it shows that 38% of Tennessee students are people of color but only 14% of Tennessee teachers are those of color and that's I guess according to a 2021 report so I'm sure the numbers are pretty much the same today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone right now um, uh, when we're thinking about the pandemic and things like that. Um, we know that it's we're really trying to get folks to become teachers. And, and that's something that we've seen nationwide. Right. Um, and also thinking about the diversity part of it we are really 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 hoping and trying to make sure that when we bring folks in we keep them and we we help them go through the program and and really wanting them to um, be a part of um, that classroom how do you go about doing that because that's got to be a, a tough task especially in the south i mean even though mm-hmm. we are in a growth period we're not quite like the new yorks and the California's yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think most of it. Okay, so one of the things that we're doing um, in the FJEs, we're partnering with um, Man Up, uh, who is run by uh, Dr. Patrick Washington, and um, that program is really uh, focused on um, the retention, the recruitment, and the retention of Black and Brown men um, to go into uh, the teaching profession. So um, we have a very specific recruitment program that. We're we're trying to just really go in and get folks to come in and um, throughout when they when they get into our program um, we actually will be supporting them in all different kinds of ways right so all of those wraparound services whether it becomes um, something that has to do with mental health um, um, different social supports and they all are paired with a mentor um, and so Again, I know I've said this word a couple of times, but it's really about being intentional um, and focusing on that. We're also looking at the intersectionality part of the identity. So when we're talking about not just race, we're also talking about ability, disability, um, when we're talking about 
um, mental health and things like that. So we're really focusing on bringing folks in and supporting those folks who, um, you know, will eventually become our teachers. Again, with us today, Dr. Michelle Stevens, director of the Center for Fairness, Justice and Equity in the MTSU College of Education. When you look at topics such as mental health, uh, such as, let's say, physical disabilities as well, how tough is that to for new students? You know, do, do you have to literally walk alongside them in the beginning in order to kind of get them to better understand the different sections of education and how they're going to fit in and maybe they don't see themselves fitting in at first. Yeah, well, thank you for that question. Um, th the great thing about our programs are they're amazing. <laughs> um, so the College of Education does a really good job of making sure that our students have the foundational knowledge that they need um, in order to build on, you know, all of those skills that they'll they'll be able to use. Um, so, uh, no, I don't think it's hard because we have all of those things built in. Part of that also is making sure that our faculty are supported and um, are also informed and that's one of the things that the FJE is there as well for. And when you look at those mental health issues do you have to kind of dissect them and say well this is something that's you know going to be a good program for you whereas mm -hmm. this other person maybe they wouldn't fit into this area of expertise but they could focus more on this one. Mm -hmm. Well you know when I think about mental health I think um, the, the professional counseling program right and so um, in that program, we have a lot of variety of students who come in with different abilities. Um, and we, we really help to um, give them some information about um, mental health issues and things like that, but making sure that, one, they're offered the supports that they, that they need. Um, we actually have two um, counseling um, services on campus, one off campus, one on. Um, and so we make sure that our students are connected with those services as well. Hey, I know, I'm sure you've noticed this, on questionnaires that people fill mm. out today, there's the, the section of where you mark either, you know, are you Caucasian, are mm. you, and then you have to, I mean, there's a huge list now. It's yeah. growing longer and mm -hmm. longer, which obviously it's being done because a more diverse population is here today. But what, what other areas do you see people from who are coming to MTSU? So we're thinking about different languages, different um, forms of religion and spirituality, um, LGBTQ plus communities, um, um, different abilities and disabilities, and, and neurodiversity as well, right? And so really thinking about the ways in which people live or uh, learn um, and making sure that we are really keeping those things in mind when we're teaching um, in, in terms of like inclusive teaching and, you know, making sure that the resources are there that need to be there. Do you foresee a day where those questions are no longer asked? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. And, and I think that part of acknowledging one's differences isn't not is, is not just acknowledging them, but it's taking them into consideration because based on our differences, um, we may see things in a different way based on our worldviews, right? And so I think having the different representations and being knowledgeable um, and aware of those differences also inform the ways in which we are connected, right? And so I, I, I think it's, it's a long and growing list. I don't know if we should ever kind of ignore those things, though. Hey, and how diverse... 
is the teaching population at MTSU, and is that diversity slowly equaling more diverse educators within let's say, for example, city schools, county schools, mm. or the high school level? You know, I don't know the specific um, statistics for that. That's one of the reasons why the FJE was really, you know, conceptualized in the first place, is to make sure that we, we continue to increase the diversity um, when it comes to the, those who were producing as teachers. Are there different scholarships available mm. for minorities today and, and do you foresee those scholarships changing in the future as those minorities slowly grow in population? You know, so w one of the things that um, we know is that there are lots of folks, lots of alumni, right, who are interested in this very topic. And so there are a lot of different scholarships and you can find those on our website um, and also the COE's website. There are lots of different scholarships that are available, not only for minorities, but for um, just a plethora of, um, you know, different backgrounds uh, that are available. So yeah, there are, there are lots of scholarships and that's one of the things that, again, we're focused on, not necessarily us awarding them, but connecting students to those so that they know that those things are available. And for those listening, whenever we post this podcast will post all the different links and, and everything within the podcast on the website so folks can take yes. a look at all this herself um, but again if somebody wants to learn more I guess best thing to do would just be to go to the MTSU website and then search for Center for Fairness? Is that the easiest thing to search yes, for? Yes, the Center for Fairness, Justice, and Equity. And we do have a website that I did not write down to bring, but it's <laughs> it, you should find it. It pops up, um, and we have um, a lot of different information about some of the programs that we're, um, we're starting to focus on. Um, our pillars are education, community engagement, advocacy, scholarship and research, and recruitment and retention. So all of those things are listed on the website. And it talks about some of the very specific things that we're doing to help in those areas. And again, the Center for Fairness, Justice and Equity, it just opened this spring within the College of Education. So it's new. It's brand new. Um, so we're really busy with uh, uh, creating lots of programming for the fall. We have resource forums um, for our faculty and our staff, um, as well as students. And so one of the things that we're making sure that our students and everyone in the College of Education knows is there are so many resources on campus so we're inviting different offices to come in to talk about hey this is how we serve the community this is how we can serve you um, and things like that so we have resource forums and different workshops um, and lunch and learns will this eventually be an office where educators throughout Tennessee can come sit down with you and others in the organization to say, you know, how can we become more diverse? Yes, that is one of our goals. Um, one of the things that we're starting is um, sort of a repository on, on our website, right? And so it has a list of resources that educators in the community can go to and um, look up for inclusive teaching and maybe even um, some different strategies and connecting with folks, right? Right. 
Um, so all of those things right now are listed on the website. Um, so we have a resource library. That's part of it. We want to really connect with the community as well. Again, our guest for the first half of this program, Dr. Michelle Stevens, Director for Center for Fairness, Justice, and Equity in the MTSU College of Education. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Time right now, 831. We do have more coming your way in just a minute, so make sure you stay with us. Is your job recession-proof? Now might be the perfect time to switch careers and become an IT professional with My Computer Career. IT is listed as one of the top recession-proof professions. You could have your dream job in just months, not years. No experience needed. Take classes online or on campus. And financial aid is available to those who qualify, including the GI Bill. Go to mycomputercareer.edu and take the free career evaluation. It's not rocket science. It's mycomputercareer.edu. With each mortgage-free home, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation delivers on its promise to do good and never forget the sacrifices of America's heroes. These heroes need your help. That's Gold Star and fallen first responder families with young children, our nation's most catastrophically injured first responders and veterans, and even our homeless service members. Help these heroes now. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Family Restaurants. Did you know that Demas's now can cater events? We can ship most of our pastas and we can deliver it to your door. If you're interested in our catering, you can go to demasesrestaurants.com and click on the menus on catering to see what options we have available for your next event. Demas's Family Restaurants, go to demasesrestaurants.com. Demas's Family Restaurants on 1115 Northwest Broad Street. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now that time, 8.33. Again, you're tuned to WGNS on this Monday morning. And now joining us in studio, Dr. Eric Detweiler, Assistant Professor in the Department of English and Director and Faculty Advisor for the Public Writing and Rhetoric Program. So I, I guess first off, the rhetoric program, what, what do you do within that? Yeah, for sure. So we, we're really excited about this new major. This is going to be the first of its kind in the state of Tennessee. And really the thing that, that we're excited about working with students on is developing their writing skills in a whole variety of sort of professionally and civically in demand kind of areas. Uh, the rhetoric part of us for us is just really trying to get students to think about the variety of audiences and purposes um, that might come up when you're trying to think about how to write a piece of, of, of effective writing, whether that's you know in a professional setting, in the classroom, when you're trying to communicate about a, a, an issue of public concern to a broader audience. Um, so that, that's really where that comes in, is, is trying to think very carefully about um, who that audience is that you're writing for, what the kind of purposes you're writing for, and to be able to, to adapt and think strategically about that. Where is the writing level of today's student coming into college? That's a good question. It, it's 
It's a hard one to answer in a lot of ways because I think some of the first places you're, you you might tend to go is like, oh, students these days like don't know how to write anymore. Things used to be so good back then. But um, I don't know. I think in a lot of ways today's students are, are really savvy writers in terms of, you know, needing to know how to navigate a lot of social media platforms and things like that. You know, whether it's writing Instagram captions or other things along those lines, like in some ways, students have been thinking really carefully about who they're writing for, um, you know, writing for people beyond their families, beyond their friend circles for a really long time. Um, but I think taking a little bit of time to think about, like, you know, who is it that I'm trying to communicate with here sort of beyond people who might be coming from the same background that I do, who are of the same age group that I'm a part of, um, can still be a challenge, I mean, for anybody, but I think that's one of the things that's really important to work with on students as well, um, sort of stepping outside of the comfort zone of some of the platforms and the um, sort of traditional writing venues that they've they've been thinking about and, and moving in other directions as well. But um, in some ways, I think some of the technologies that they're used to using have, have done some really neat things to help you have a little bit of that rhetorical awareness and, and an ability to, um, to, you know, think about having a real audience out there in the world who's reading things that you post somewhere. How hard is it to teach a student, you know, this is your audience who you're writing for and these are the demographics and this is how they're going to take it and this is how you should tweak what you're writing? I mean, how hard is it to figure those things out? I think one of the big things for students when you're trying to approach that kind of thing is often breaking through some of the anxiety that they have about when it comes to writing in school settings. Because um, I think for a lot of us, you know, if we grew up with standardized testing, if we grew up with, you know, timed exams, there's a little bit of a sense of like, oh, no, like kind of a freak out that happens when you're when you're given a writing assignment sometimes. Um, or maybe, you know, you were taught to do the five paragraph essay and you've done that over and over again. You kind of know how to write in that sort of way. But branching out into something new um, can still be kind of a challenge. It can still be kind of nerve wracking. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things that even when we're teaching our, you know, first semester kind of general education writing classes at MTSU we deal with. And then I think will be one of the things we're thinking about with this program as well. Like how do you um, help people feel sort of comfortable and confident as writers um, and have the ability and the willingness to take risks and to try out new things and to um, to think about those those issues of audience and things like that um, in ways that, that might be different from um, some of the more conventional ways that they, they might have been taught to write in other settings or just some of the, the some of the nervousness they might have around that. So for those listening, if, if somebody is going into this new program at MTSU and, and public writing, that could be such a wide topic of coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you see that student eventually going when it comes to a career? Yeah, so I'll say one of the... Um one of the big things we've seen as we've been putting this major together is that if you look at the things that employers are, are looking for uh, when they're looking at the resumes of job applicants and things like that, um, consistently <laughs> writing skills is one of the highest things that we see ranked on those lists, the things that employers are, are really looking for. And there are some dedicated fields very focused on writing that this major is meant to prepare students for. So technical writing, doing kind of documentation and things like that um, within different kinds of companies, especially a lot of the tech companies that are coming to Middle Tennessee right now. Um, grant writing positions, content strategy, things where you're developing written content for, for websites and other digital platforms. Um, so those are some of the specific fields that we're aiming to prepare students for. But also, I think this is such a, a, a 
widespread thing, that's one of the reasons we chose public as one of the key terms for this major, is it's not something that just slots into one specific job. It's something that really across the board um, people are looking for. And so being able to think about writing for for other stakeholders at the company that might hire you or be interested in hiring you be a, being able to write for consumers or broad broader public audiences about sort of complex issues um, really we're hoping that we can also prepare students in a way that is dynamic is adaptable and goes beyond just like one or two kind of set fields Hi, again we're talking with dr eric Det wheeler assistant professor in the department of english and director faculty advisor for the brand new public writing and rhetoric program at MTSU uh, with this new program and, and you know overall it seems like for years if somebody can write and be able to tell the story in a way that's understandable to a, a wide group of readers it's that storyteller that really rises above everyone else because if you have the ability to tell a story then you've got the ability to to really reach a huge audience yeah, I think you're absolutely right, hitting, hitting the nail right on the head there. I mean, storytelling has been a, a, a term we've thought a lot about as we're preparing this. I think when a lot of people hear writing, when they hear English, especially in the context uh, of, of higher education, you know, they might go to creative writing, they might go to literature kind of first. And of course, storytelling is, is a really key term there as well. I mean, if you're reading a novel, you know, you're typically reading a story. Uh, but I think for a lot of students, being able to think about, you know, I'm passionate about storytelling. This is something I really love. I've been doing it my whole life. But now what do I do with that as I'm getting into college? Um, I think being able to think about those storytelling habits and practices, as you just said, is something that has a lot of cachet um, far beyond just creative writing, even if that's something that ultimately is, ultimately is what students want to do can be a really a really neat thing to have on your toolkit uh, in a whole variety of different fields. Um, so, so yeah, I think thinking about storytelling as a key element of this major is, is, is spot on. And this really mixes and meshes well with a lot of other areas of expertise, especially in the ad world, you know, the, the commercial war, world of things, uh, plus in video games. I mean, there's just so many different aspects that can blend into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's uh, I'm actually finishing up a summer class right now that focuses on video games. Um, and so along the way, you know, students are writing kinds of papers where they're looking at the history of this medium, which is, you know, become one of the biggest industries in the world at this point. Um, but also getting a little bit of practice at the end of that course where they're actually making their own kind of text-based writing heavy games and starting to think about what are the different kinds of practices that come into writing with these digital media where I'm trying to give a player choices um, and writing in ways that it accounts for the different things they might want to do, even if I'm not writing in a more conventional kind of like linear point A to point B kind of way. And when it comes to writing in social media, a lot of times, you know, you're confined to, well, I got to figure out how to say this in 600 words or less. How do you teach that to a student in telling a story within 600 words or less, because that's gotta be tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is maybe a little bit of a nuts and bolts answer, but even in, in my classes sometimes when I'm having students doing a writing project, I'll ask them to try to summarize that project at three different lengths. So can you boil what you're trying to say down to a single sentence and communicate it there? 
Could you write it in a paragraph? Um, could you write it in three words? Um, and, and even though that is definitely a classroom kind of exercise, I think that is the kind of practice and habit that we're trying to get students to develop in this new major. Um, you know, how can you think about how much space you have to work with, how much context you have, you know, what words can you leave out? What points can you assume that somebody who's reading this can fill in? Um, and, and I think that's some of the excitement and experimentality of this major is just giving students those kinds of opportunities. And a lot of it, I think as much as people think about writing as, as a matter of talent is, is as much a matter of habit and practice, you know, just like with sports, just like with music, uh, and sort of flexing those, those writing muscles in different ways and having a lot of time to, to, to put in the practice with them. And the music side of things, that's a whole nother avenue, but it has to do with writing again. Yeah, yeah, lots of different kinds of composition, of course, going on in music. Um, we've got some classes that focus on things like uh, sort of podcasting and writing for the ear that we're putting together for this major. And so that's a place where students, um, even beyond more traditional kinds of mu musical courses and education are, um, you know, thinking about where do I place that little like musical element when I'm narrating a story so that it helps heighten the emotion of sort of what I'm talking about um, or sort of gives the listener a moment to sort of think and gather their thoughts. Um, so there's a lot of different ways all these different media come together, I think, um, in, even in uh, the most kind of basic writing classroom that can be really exciting. Do you foresee some future students eventually becoming, let's say, political writers for speeches? Yeah, yeah, I think that is is definitely something that's that we've been thinking about with this major. Um, we've also designed it as a very flexible double major. So let's say you've got a student who is majoring in political science, is majoring in communication studies, things like that, um, and they want to double major in this as a way of of sort of honing their writing chops and thinking about how that might uh, work in tandem with other areas of study that that are of interest to them. Um, that's that's definitely a possibility here, and you know we talk about communicating about public issues in our classes as well, the kind of thing that, of course, uh, politicians need to and aren't always good at doing in, in speeches. So hopefully our students will be prepared to, to help with that kind of work and contribute to those kinds of fields as well. Again with us this morning, Dr. Eric Detwheeler, and he is the assistant professor in the Department of English and director, faculty advisor for the public writing and rhetoric program. And, and again, when did this program start? Because it's new. Yeah, so really officially, it's not gonna start till this fall. Um, we just got approval from the Tennessee Higher Education Commission uh, at their summer meeting to launch this major. Uh, it's been in the works all the way back to about 2018. You know, that's when we first started meeting with some other faculty and administrators around MTSU to see if there was the interest in this thing. Uh, but this fall, we're hitting the ground running with a couple of our courses um, on the books available to students, um, uh, whether they're in the writing minor right now, whether they're English majors, or whether they're uh, you know, new students in this public writing and rhetoric major. We'll have a few of those up and running. We'll be bringing in some community partners and professional write writers from around the region to talk to those students um, and are really, really excited to get it up and going. So this fall is when it'll officially start. Mm -hmm. yep. it, are there going to be freshman level classes? Uh, yeah, so it's it's a little bit of both there. Um, for a lot of students at MTSU, you know, freshman year, you're still going to be taking care of a lot of your general education classes. 
in our writing classes, English 1010 and English 1020, which are both writing classes are a big part of that. Um, so students can jump right into those. And then once they've moved through those courses, um, then they'll be prepared to and, and have the prerequisites they need to jump into our classes after that. Um, so if they're transferring in credit from you know dual enrollment or community colleges, they may be ready to jump right into these courses. Uh, but typically they're starting out with those general education classes first to get prepared. Again, Dr. Eric Detwheeler with us this morning from MTSU. And whenever we post this podcast, we'll post some links as well. So uh, folks listening can find out more information that way. But thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Time right now, 847. We do have more news, more information, and more from MTSU in just a minute. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Homeschool families take flight at Motlow State. Motlow is hosting open house events for homeschool students interested in earning college credit while still in high school with Motlow's dual enrollment. These events are for homeschool students and all first-time freshmen. Most Motlow students attend tuition-free. Take flight with us. Join us at our Smyrna campus July 21st or 22nd. Register at motlow.edu slash homeschoolopenhouse. Hi, I'm Chelsea Fancher, Gabriel Fancher's wife. We live in the new District 13. This is something that he always wanted to be, was a state representative. He is a family man and he cares about what the future holds for our children. We know that he does care about strong education, better economy, better infrastructure. Gabriel is a wonderful husband, father, and teacher, and I hope you'll join me on August 4th in the Republican primary. Casting your vote for Gabriel Fancher. Paid for by friends of Gabriel Fancher, Rick Sane Treasurer. Hi, I'm Larry Castelli, and I love living at Adams Place. You have an exercise class in balance that is more aerobic, get your heart rate up and so forth. Then you have only stretch and balance. You don't feel cramped. You have a nice campus and you have uh, green spaces. Well, I think it's a good place to live. I'm Terry Deal. Call me for more information about Adams Place, located at 1927 Memorial Boulevard, across from Walmart. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Time right now, 8.49, and now with us in studio, Dr. John Vile, Dean of the University Honors College and constitutional law scholar and author. How are you this morning? Doing great, and you? I'm good. So one of the big news stories we heard a lot about in recent weeks was the one of Roe versus Wade, and the impact of the Supreme Court's decision is definitely being felt all over America. We've heard of protest. We've we've even heard of vandalisms so how is all of this going to to play out in the weeks and months to come well the decision of course is is dobbs uh, dobbs versus uh, mississippi health center and it's as as you're pointing out the significance is it overturned roe versus wade prior to roe which was decided in 1973 
the issue of abortion was basically a state decision. And in fact, there were relatively few states who permitted it. Now, there were some of the larger ones, including New York and California, but there were only, if I remember correctly, about six or seven states uh, that permitted it. Texas did not. Roe was, uh, was a pseudonym. She was from Texas. And uh, she took her case to the court, and the court essentially extended the right of abortion fairly liberally up through the sixth month. And then that has there's been several cases since, one, one known as the Casey decision, in which the court essentially said, well, we don't know for, you know, some people have questioning the, questioned the reasoning of Roe versus Wade, but once it's in effect, it would be too disruptive to overturn it, so we're going to continue with it as precedent. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, several states have passed so-called heartbeat laws or others where they've defined uh, uh, human life or, or at least human life again, f- prior to, to can't be aborted at like the 12th week or the 15th week. And in this case, the court upheld it and essentially turn, returned the issue to the state. So we're, we're back sort of status quo ante. Uh, and there are some, you know, even when, it, when abortion laws were in effect, of course, they were often evaded. Uh, and, of course, one way is, is by crossing state lines and going to states that, that have uh, freer abortion laws. So pre-1970s, abortion, that issue was in the hands of different states. It was, yes. And then this case came along, and it changed that to a big degree. And now we're back at that point of it being back in the hands of the state. Well, we are with with one qualification. There there have been some efforts in Congress to see if you could get a national law on the subject, and frankly, it's an area of great interest to me because I'm not sure. Um, there's no specific provision in the Constitution giving Congress national criminal law rights. Um, one could argue that the 14th Amendment provides equal protection to all people, and if you think that fetuses are are persons, then they would get equal protection. But that's not actually what the Supreme Court decision seems to have said in Dobbs. Uh, Alito basically says, uh, you know, it's it's not our it, the the Constitution was silent uh, on the question when it when it was or the 14th Amendment was silent on the issue when it was adopted back in 1868. So I don't know what, what, you know, what happens if we get a state that says we're going to prohibit abortion and then you have the national government saying, but we're going to support it within your jurisdiction. It gets very confusing, I guess, when different states, different judges try to interpret what's going on. And then how does this impact Tennessee? How does this impact the local courts even right well tennessee of course is one of those states that has a what's known as a trigger law uh which basically says if the supreme court ever changes its mind we're going back to where we were we're going to uh prohibit abortion or at least most abortion maybe maybe a you know maybe some provisions for the life and health of the mother but you know what's interesting is even within tennessee if you go for example to davidson county it's my understanding that the da there basically says we have bigger fish to fry uh, than to be tracking down doctors who are performing abortions, particularly in, you know, cases that, that, that might, you know, where reasonable people might disagree on the subject. So you, you could have, you know, you could have within a state that opposes abortion areas where you don't have enforcement, 
But then, of course, the, the woman and or the doctor still has a problem with, well, this prosecutor won't prosecute me, but what if, you know, if he's, let's say he's a Democrat, if, an, if a Republican prosecutor is elected, might he come back and, and, and try to prosecute me for something that happened, you know, during, during the former prosecutor's term? It sounds like there is some muddy water there that is yet to be cleared up, and I don't think we've seen the end of all this. No, and, and of course the irony is, I, I think in many ways, you know, the Supreme Court is trying to get out of the get out of the abortion business one way or the other. You know, they don't want to decide, you know, when is viability, you know, what what, what are the proper occasions and and not. But eventually, we're going to find laws that are probably silly enough or extreme enough that the Supreme Court is going to say, well, we didn't quite mean to go that far. Uh, Particularly, I would say, you know, there are some states that seem to have very, well, it's not so much that they don't permit abortion in the cases of the life of the mother, but they're so ambiguous that some doctors are unsure whether they could be prosecuted or not. And, you know, we had an example of that fairly recently with this 10-year-old girl who crossed state lines from, I guess, Ohio to Illinois, I believe it was, or Indiana, to get an abortion. Um, so, yeah, there's there are, there are a lot of unknowns. How much power does the Supreme Court have over different decisions in general when it comes to the different state levels? I, I mean, does the Supreme Court have the ability to to override and change things, change history, literally for years to come? Well, it depends. I mean, there are generally, you know, there's some some state decisions that are made on the basis of state constitutions. And if they have that independent ground and it doesn't conflict with the federal constitution, generally the courts will defer. But there, there's a very interesting uh, case that the court is going to be considering in the next term dealing with state legislative apportionment. And, you know, at least three judges seem to say, well, the, the court's rule that this apportionment plan is improper under their state constitution but when we read their state constitution we don't see that and that's sort of unusual for the u.s supreme court to be interpreting a state constitution rather than the u.s constitution are we going to see more of this in the future or are we going to see less of it you think well i mean the court has always been a very influential very important institution in in, in u.s government a lot may depend on whether you know is biden uh, or are the Democrats going to be making the next couple appointments or are Republicans? Right now it's sort of a 6-3 split on the court with six fairly reliably conservative votes and three, you know, uh, fairly reliable liberal votes and one or two justices. And, of course, we have, you know, we have a new justice uh, who uh, has not decided anything yet, but she'll be on the next term. But she's replacing a very, you know, ju- uh, Justice uh Breyer, who uh, probably would have, you know, she'll probably, she was once his clerk and probably will decide in a similar fashion. Have you been surprised at all about this most recent issue dealing with abortion in the Supreme Court? Well, you know, it's one of the few times in U.S. history where we got a leaked decision. And it turned out, you know, what we what we saw in the leak about, what, two months before the decision. Now, when you read the actual decision, there's there's a section that was omitted that deals with answering the people and the, the three dissenters in the case. Uh, but it, but I, I'm not so much surprised that the court restricted abortion, you know, or allowed for further restrictions on abortion as it did it so quickly. Uh, and, and, and in such a major fashion, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, 
was sort of the out on this one. You have, you know, five votes. It's basically five to three to one. He said he would retain Roe versus Wade to the extent that a woman should have some choice. And he said, in his judgment, 15 weeks was enough to give a woman a, dis- a proper choice. Uh, I guess I would have more expected a decision like that rather than we're just going to wash our hands of the Roe versus Wade completely and, you know, let the state start over. Is there somewhere where the listener out there can find out more information about this to, to I guess, to better educate themselves on the issues? Well, of course, you can actually, one of the things that I'd like is I'd like people to actually read the Supreme Court decision. So I often go, you can go just, you know, type in U.S. Supreme Court and you'll give you opinions of the court. But I will caution that the the abortion decision is, particularly with dissents, is well over 100 pages. Uh, most, you know, most national, I mean, even Wikipedia, if you put the name, put the Dobbs decision in there, it'll give you a pretty good summary of what that decision is. And the same would be true of Roe versus Wade. You know, there's another very interesting case this year uh, dealing with a guy named Kennedy uh, and whether he could give prayers at a, uh, a coach, give give prayers at a, at a game. And all of these are, you know, are written up. So they're not that hard to find. Again, our guest in this last half of the program, Dr. John Vile, Dean of the University Honors College and constitutional law scholar and author. And I appreciate you joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank we're, you very much. We're already out of time. It went by really fast. Yes, it, it did. <laughs> time right now, 9 o'clock. Stay with us. We do have more news and information coming up, including J. Paul Newman, host of The Roundtable, coming your way in just a few minutes directly after the news. Again, time, 9 o'clock. This is WGNS Murfreesboro.